0: You will no doubt have heard of Moobrew, Tasmania's biggest independent brewery, founded by David Walsh, creator of MONA, the Museum of Old and New Art in Hobart. Moobrew, which is mainly a production brewery, will be 17 years old this year, so it's been through all the ups and downs and the evolution of brewing in both Tasmania and Australia. Today, we have with us Lauren Shepherd, who has been appointed general manager in 2020 after the departure of longtime GM and brewer Dave McGill. Uh, Lauren worked at Moo Brew founder's winery business, Marilla Estates, uh, since it acquired Domain A Winery. So it's been a bit of a lateral move into beer. Firm. We also have with us uh, Jack Viney, who took over the head brewer role and has been with the business for around seven years, um, before which he had uh, a diverse range of roles in lots of different industries. Uh, So thanks for being on the podcast with us today, guys. Thanks Thanks for having us. us. How's everything going? Someone's in isolation, I believe.
2: Yes, I'm in isolation, other than Mm. the fact that it's a little bit tricky to do your job when you can't get to the brewery. um, It's okay. It's, you know... For Tasmanians, I guess, um, we've been really fortunate not to have to worry about it so much, not Mm -hmm. like our Victorian and New South Wales counterparts over the last little while, so we're probably a little bit naive to the impacts of it, so maybe feeling it a little bit more, I guess, at the moment, Um, while everyone sort of seeks their freedoms, we're, we're sort of just learning how to deal with it, but... Other than my personal situation right now, the brewery is doing really well. Lots happening, always lots happening, never a dull moment.
0: (laughs) Yeah, because and that's really interesting. We've spoken before, Lauren, about this sort of delayed reaction in places like Tasmania, maybe WA and NT as well, where they were a little bit insulated. The states themselves were a little bit insulated from the immediate effects of COVID, the, the closures, the lockdowns and things like that. Obviously lockdown as a state, but potentially a little bit freer. Uh, I know when I went to Tasmania last year and it was full mask wearing mandates in Queensland, I was like shocked that I didn't have to wear a mask. Everyone thought I was weird because I carried one round. Um, how has that impacted Moo Brew as a, as a business?
2: Well, Like anyone in Tasmania, I think not just breweries, but just businesses in general, our little island state uh, is really dependent on the tourism market. So we certainly uh, felt the impact of the closures. Whilst I think that the majority were really relieved that um, from our own sort of personal and health protections that the closures were in place as long as they were, it definitely had an impact on business in our state. Um, We certainly felt the impact in keg volumes. Um, So we were fortunate to already have in place a really great packaging program. And really great distribution of our packaged product that saw us through without any, you know, without any um, staff impact during that time. But uh, but the impact was definitely felt on volume, even in Tassie, where we all like a beer. uh, The volumes are definitely lifted by how many Victorian and New South Wales, particularly visitors, are expected and come to our state. Um, So. It's one of those hard questions, Claire, because I feel like we've been very fortunate, and it's almost it's almost unfair for us to complain about the impacts compared to other states. Uh, they were there; they were possibly not as significant um, as other places, but we, like everyone, had to pivot a little bit in our processes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely,
0: and I guess it helps that you have a really strong local following as well. You weren't necessarily reliant totally on tourists and people visiting.
2: Uh, the the locals certainly voted with their feet during our state um, lockdown. We were very very lucky that um, Tasmanians support the buy local mentality. Um, so we were very grateful for that. Um, I guess the flip side of that, Claire, is that when the borders reopened, we've had probably one of our toughest summers in terms of sales because. When the borders reopened and and tourism businesses were very excited to welcome visitors back in, the locals were certainly uh, a little gun-shy, I guess. Um, we tended to hibernate just in case. Um, so that local trade that we had become really reliant on and very grateful for almost overnight disappeared um, and that happened sort of mid-December and really we're only sort of seeing that uh, consumer confidence built back up, I would say, in the last mm-hmm. two to three weeks.
0: Yeah. And like, we know that we can't guarantee or rely on necessarily people coming to Tasmania. So without the local uh, support or the, the caution of local people, often you're like, oh, well, we don't want to like pin our hopes on having good revenue this week because we don't know who's coming, what it's like in that state whether people there are a bit cautious and don't want to travel and have moved their flights and things like that. Um, so I guess it's just been a really odd time for you.
2: It's been a really strange time. Um, from a business point of view, I guess what it's really highlighted to us and probably I would suspect to many other businesses is that, you, yeah, you can't put all your eggs in one basket and how important it is for us to make sure our offering and our business model is diverse and can cope with the ups and downs.
0: Absolutely. Obviously we've done we've done the COVID portion of the discussion. Have to do it, have to mention it, even though we've seem to have forgotten about it in the news cycles at the minute, which is to be honest quite nice. Um but tell me a little bit about your backgrounds then. Um, so Lauren, you came from wine. I did. How is that?
2: How did you get to beer? It's through the weird and wonderful group of companies that is Mona, I I guess. I don't think it's an, a, a stock standard kind of lateral move for people, but um, I was the business manager at Domaine, A, um, one of Tassie's wineries. Uh, that was, and in 2018, David Walsh purchased that business. Um, and to be honest, I was probably expecting to come across, help with the transition, um, and and then toddle off. But once I got to the Mona group of companies, I was then asked to work with Marilla, their wine brand as well, uh, which I. Absolutely loved. Um, and then COVID hit. And so that business again, like everyone else had to pivot. We instigated some um, home delivery services and national free shipping and a real focus on e-commerce platforms, which kept me busy for a little while. But, um, but it was evident sort of around that time that, um, that I'd probably uh, probably done everything I could to help that team get up and on their feet, and right in the middle of COVID lockdowns, as, as serious as COVID lockdowns got in Tasmania, I guess I have got I've, I got a call that said, "Hey, do you want to take over a brewery in COVID lockdown?" And I jumped at the chance. I've been I've been a Moobrick fan for a really long time. Um, I think it's fair to say everyone that works at Mona in the group of Mona companies—that's you know between four and five hundred. Staff members at any given time, um, and we talk about it all the time. But but they're all Mubu's greatest ambassadors. So I uh, yeah I jumped at the opportunity. Did my normal. I'm a numbers nerd, so I did a did a fair amount of show me all the numbers and see if I can be of use to the business. Um, and when I was convinced that I could, um, I took the job. It was a lot easier too going into a general manager's role with a head brewer um, appointed that you knew would have everything under control on the brewery floor um, so I could focus where my strengths are, which is it's in business, commercialization, efficiencies, it's all sound incredibly boring. I really enjoy them. <laughs> yeah,
0: absolutely. I'm, I'm on board with you there, definitely. Um, and I think that the that you've made that move from wine to beer is really interesting and gives you a really interesting perspective. Um, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, what about you, Jack? How did you get to Moo Brew?
1: Um, my my sort of backstory is probably not as interesting, but grew up in Tassie, went to uni in Tassie and left and worked overseas for a bunch of years. Uh, and then when I moved back, um, came back to Moo and started here and then I've been here ever since. So it's probably seven, seven and a half years maybe uh, been at the brewery. So sort of um, Moo's given me the chance to grow and develop as a brewer and um, obviously learn a lot along the way. Uh, and now currently running the brewery with Raoul Wilson, who's my production manager as well, who's also been here for a similar amount of time. So the our transition was probably a little easier than Lawrence, given that we were both already here with a pretty well established production crew as well, the brewers and packaging team and warehousing and stuff. So definitely made our lives a little easier.
0: You haven't always been a brewer, have you, Jack? You've done a few bits and bobs before that. How did you, where did you learn to brew?
1: done a lot of different things over the years. Um, I studied, I did a science law degree at uni uh, and worked primarily in sort of the environmental uh, science sector and then um, sort of resources as well uh, and then was living in Canada doing a bunch of different resource work and enviro work and then just skiing in the winter when I had downtime. T- time. Um, so sort of, yeah, always mm-hmm. just jumped around and done a bunch of different things but uh, professional brewing career started at Moobrew so it was uh, definitely a place that feels very normal to me as far as rolling into work every day.
0: Yeah oh that's really interesting then so you basically learned to brew from scratch when you started at Moobrew did was you didn't have to do any qualifications you just learned from the ground up?
1: I mean pretty much every brewer is always home brewed at some point we always home brewed through uni and uh, just to supply ourselves with beer I guess so brewing in general was not new to me but definitely commercial brewing as anyone knows is a mm-hmm. total different beast to making beer in your basement uh, so yeah definitely had to lean on my science degree a fair bit for some of the uh, brewing side of things and then I've just since gone through some brewing studies since working at my brew through Siebel's and IBD as well so um, the brewing industry is oh, a, little, cool. a little bit unregulated in that sense, but if you want to get some qualifications, they're out there too between Siebel's and IBD, sort of the two yeah. two major ones. But I would, on that note, I will note that the IBA is working really hard uh, to get some TAFE courses up and running. So three uh, courses, mm-hmm. I know they're running them in New South Wales uh, and Young Henrys and Rich have been uh, big big advocates and had a massive part to play in getting that off the ground. So the industry, the Independent Brewers Association is definitely looking to try and help the education stream to get qualified uh, or um, well-educated people into the brewery stream. So we're not doing all the hard work once they put their feet on the floor.
0: Mm -hmm. And the University of Tasmania, they've taken on some fermentation courses, I believe, is that right?
1: They have, yeah. They're running a fermentation science course. We get a bunch of their students for... Uh, student placements, which is really cool that we can work with them on that and give the students a bit of an experience about what the commercial brewery is like to work in. Um, They're they're very science overall, sort of science driven, less brewery specific, but they're learning really core foundation principles Mm -hmm. that obviously transfer to any kind of fermentation uh, business. So it's a really good course that's running uh, in Tassie at the moment. And um, yeah, it's nice to be able to have some of the students come through the brewery as well for some hands on experience. Yeah,
0: that's really cool. And I think it's awesome as well because there's actually quite a lot of breweries in Tasmania considering the population. I think we worked out that there's around about one brewery for every 22,000 people in Tasmania, which is good odds considering the size of the state. So brewing actually is quite, a, I won't say dominant, but a, a big industry there. Do you think it's received the support that potentially other industries have? I think it's fair to say in Tasmania,
2: the industry as a whole would feel that we don't necessarily get uh, industry specific support. I don't think it's yet acknowledged um, as an industry worthy of the numbers that you're sort of spouting, Claire. Uh, it takes it's going to take a little while, I guess, for them to acknowledge that there's, there are that, that many breweries per capita um, and that it deserves acknowledgement as an industry in its own right. Um, interestingly, coming from the wine industry, I guess my, my first kind of touchstone is to compare it to the support that the wine industry receives, and it's fair to say we are – in tassie probably 10 10 years behind acknowledging craft brewing in the same way as we acknowledge the um the support that we give the wine industry Uh, even you know licensing is difficult it's more expensive to license a craft beer cellar door than it is to license a wine cellar door just as a like it's a probably an insignificant example but the lack of parity is is certainly there that's not to say that there aren't people receptive to hearing about it and i believe that there are people in the government that are um, are starting to be much more receptive um, and it's as much on us as an industry to make sure we're continuing to be vocal and demanding being listened to absolutely yeah definitely
0: um, um because i mean it, t- being where you guys are Being in Tasmania there are some really unique challenges for breweries, obviously distance being the main one. How does that impact your business? Is it a case of planning everything six months, ten years in advance? Um, How does that impact? You obviously have to think about the strategy, the logistics, the supply chain a lot more potentially than you might do on the mainland.
2: It's definitely a challenge. Um, I think one advantage our industry has is how close-knit all of the breweries are. Um, so we're, we're all really aware of those challenges and I think are pretty good at sharing resources um, where we can and where we think it might help if someone finds themselves, you know, a little bit short of something that they need because they hadn't been able to foresee the demand, for example. Um, is that fair to say, Jack? We do a fair bit of that, don't we?
1: Yeah, no, I think that's fair. In general, from a production facility, bass, bass definitely gives you some headaches from raw materials in and then finished product out again. And because we have grown to a reasonable size production facility and a lot of our beer goes up uh, to the mainland and particularly up the eastern seaboard, uh, freight cost is obviously a massive um, thing that we have to deal with and it's only getting more and more expensive. So for us to be running a production brewery out of Tassie's definitely has its challenges at times. Yeah,
0: the freight issue is a really interesting one and I know that people even on the mainland buying in brew kits, ordering from places like China, they've had to add months and times it by dozens uh, in terms of the price. So, you know, there are obviously some major challenges in freight, and I imagine that's going to impact potentially costs and whether that is passed on to the consumer and things like that. Is Do you envision that sort of happening or continuing to happen in the next couple of years as well?
2: I think it's fair to say that the cost of doing business is going to be a challenge for everybody nationally. But as a percentage of our operating costs, yeah, freight is, is probably a higher percentage than those on the mainland in most cases. So it's definitely a consideration. Having said that, it's always cost more to put beer in a, a can in Tasmania than it has anywhere else because of the cost of getting those things here. There's no producers creating, you know, creating cans or there's no can suppliers on the island. There's no glass bottle suppliers on the island. It's the same for the wine industry. It's the same for a lot of people in Tasmania. So we've always worked to different margin expectations too. So um, I think it's about us being um, really smart in how we can lessen the impact on the consumer uh, because that's where, it'll fall down, but also in being really proud and, and confident enough to sell that it's worth paying a little bit extra for stuff that comes from Tasmania because it's just better.
0: Love it. <laughs> now, having said that, uh, obviously, as, as we've mentioned, Brew has made moves further afield on the Eastern seaboard. You're part of the Urban House of Brews, which is set to go in, in Sydney. You've got sales reps up there as well. Um, How have you found it moving outside the Tassie bubble? Um, What are the challenges? How different is it from operating in Tasmania?
2: Mubru has been available sort of nationwide for a number of years now. So it's not a new challenge for us, but it's an ever-evolving one to make sure that we're staying relevant in those spaces. The last two years, I would say, particularly has been probably a double-edged sword in, like I said before, people are buying local and thank heavens they did in Tasmania and and thank goodness that we've got such a local support base. And so for for that reason, we're really grateful, but it does make it more challenging, I think, particularly now to be an interstate brewery trying to get a portion of, you know, particularly sort of, you know, if we're looking as far afield for us as New South Wales or Queensland, People are buying local everywhere. Um, so it is, it's definitely, I think, more tricky to get the traction that you want in those spaces. Victoria is a weird one for Tassie. Victorians also almost feel like Tassie is an extension of Victoria. There's definitely an element of buy lo- local loyalty from Victoria that extends to Tasmania. So we're, we're pretty lucky in that space, but there are definitely challenges, um, moving further afield. Having said that, that's why we are exploring Other opportunities, you know, not just in delivering packaged product in those spaces, but making sure we're part of, you know, hospitality opportunities when they arise, making sure that we're telling our Mona origin story really well in those states too, because it is a big selling point to. A point of difference, I guess, for our brand story. Um, so, yeah, the challenges remain. I, th- I think they always will. I think business is evolving all the time. COVID has thrown a spanner, but there'll always be reasons why it's harder for Tasmanian businesses to get the traction they want in other states. But I don't know anyone other than like that shouts by independent um uh, more loudly than Moobrew, so it would be a bit hypocritical for us not to appreciate that in Sydney people buy from Sydney.
0: Having said that, though, the brand Tasmania does really have some clout in the Australian and potentially the even the international market. Would you agree with that? Is that fair to say? Uh, absolutely,
2: and it's you know it's a it's a big reason why in our new range, which I know we're going to talk about a little bit more, but it's why we're. Um, we're really honing in on one of the things that we think is our biggest selling point, and that's Tasmania, um, wearing it loudly and proudly on, the, on our cans and making sure that, um, you know, amidst, amidst the choices that people are forced to make, that the, the fact that we are Tasmanian and, and wear it really proudly is, is definitely part of our strategy moving forward.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, Lauren, you set me up beautifully for talking about your sub-brands there. Um, so you launched the Brew at B-R-E-W, sub-brand, uh, last year, I believe. Tell me a little bit about that, why you launched it, why you felt that a, like a sub-brand like that would work for Mubru. Sure,
2: that's a big question, isn't it? Um,
0: <laughs> remembering, I suppose, that
2: um, that Jack and I took on the reins in the midst of COVID where everybody was being really mindful about how they can um, continue, how they can diversify, um, the brew by Moobrew range is designed to get a piece of the market that Moobrew hadn't had before, um, and that's a more carton sort of savvy buyer. Um, our products are, you know, historically probably a six pack or a four pack buy for most people. Um, so we wanted to appeal to the customer that might buy a carton of Moobrew instead of instead of a couple of Moobrew. But more importantly, we were trying to find ways that we could, I guess, reduce the barrier to buying craft for those that hadn't before. We've got an incredibly loyal following for our icons and the beers that we've made for many years and will continue to make for many years to come. Um, What we were trying to do from a moobrew point of view, but also from from an industry point of view is try and work out if we could find a way to introduce craft beer to a consumer that maybe had only ever bought commercial or bought because of loyalty patterns or because of hereditary patterning. You know, I've always seen mum and dad with this particular beer in the fridge, so that's what I go and buy as well. Trying to find a way to break down that barrier um, and introduce craft beer to a consumer that may have been a little bit daunted or confronted or challenged. By some of the big hot sort of characteristics, um, mm-hmm. the people that I, I we like to joke at the brewery, the people that um, ask how much craft is in it, like it's an
0: ingredient, you know, like is it
2: has got a lot of craft or is it just a
0: little bit? Um, a yeah, just so those... it's all one hundred percent craft. What are you talking about? I make it with my hands.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's that's right. Craft is not actually an ingredient. Um, <laughs> so it was those customers, customers that, to be fair, we hadn't really targeted it before. Um, we saw an opportunity to see if we could make a beer that we were still incredibly proud of, that still one hundred percent tasted like Brew in a can, but tried to put a persuasive
0: beer if you like for the craft curious. The craft, I love the craft curious. I think that's fantastic, um, Jack. What do you think that like this move is? Obviously, people have done it in lots of different ways. People have focused on lagers, rice lagers. They've looked at beers within that area the more sessionable beers what does this mean for the industry and for brewers are we all going to be end up end up brewing lagers forever or is there still room to grow that niche craft um more technically difficult more um challenging beer uh in the industry or will that do you think always stay niche
1: no i think i think the rise of these kind of beers is answering to general consumers demands and the more people that we get drinking craft beer, the more people are likely to go and also maybe buy a four pack or a single can unit of a 500 mil limited release or um, so I don't think this the, the people that are buying these beers is ruining the craft industry or pulling away from the creative or the um, you know the big coffee beers or whatever it might be. I think it's an added uh, consumer into the general market and I think it gives breweries particularly like us, um sort of both ends of the spectrum where we can you know all our cost cost of goods and things come down because we create more volume and that gives us more money and time and space to play with the other end of the spectrum which is limited releases and really crafty uh things sort of that sit outside our icon range so i think uh, from our perspective I've, obviously every brewery is different but i think it it works really well to sort of give us another um Tier of beer and beer drinkers that we wouldn't normally have access to that wouldn't be drinking what it what is craft beer essentially. I mean, it obviously is because it still comes out of the brewery and it's made the same way. Uh, it's just probably not what your four pack buying single can unit buyer would consider as you know really high end craft beer. But it's all it's all craft beer at the end of the day. So if people are drinking it, then I think that's good for the industry.
0: That's it. And let's be real, it's not actually that easy to brew lager. It can be quite difficult no, and it's, requires. It's not. A- a level of skill
1: <laughs> not. And I, and I think the rise of the rise of lagers if you want to say in inverted commas is a really good thing um whether or not they're Aussie lagers or traditional European pilsners um I, I think it's probably you know a sub style and a style that uh in the past maybe hasn't had the hype or the um traction that it's getting now and if you get people in drinking easygoing quaffable lagers and then they transition into drinking pilsners or whatever that might be in, in that lager spectrum, then it's it's good for people that want to keep making those beer styles. So I think it's I think it's a good thing.
2: We're starting to see the proof of that theory too, Claire, just in our anecdotally, but, um, you know, with the launch of this range, what we're also seeing is that people are buying from us on our, you know, Marilla e-commerce or Mona e-commerce platforms. They're buying a case of lager, but they're also buying something alongside it. So these are customers that have never purchased before, but are purchasing now because they're interested in this new range and also buying other Moobrew products.
0: That's fantastic. And also, I know you say anecdotally, but I bet you've got some data on that as well somewhere as well, Laura. Um, I have. <laughs> I got, I'm not sure that I'll share it with you, Claire, but I've got it. Oh, a... no, that's fair. Yeah, fair enough. You know, you can't really. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic. I guess that's the question then. You have set up the sub-brand, I keep calling it sub-brand, we'll call it sub-brand, um, why do that instead of attaching it to the main Brew brand? I mean, I know it says buy Mubru. Um How distant is it and how distant do you want it to be from the Mubru that we know?
2: I don't think it's – the motivation certainly wasn't to distance it because we weren't proud of it, and I think that's that's a, a careful kind of delineation that we need to make. We wouldn't put buy Brew on it if we – weren't really proud of it. Um it was as much to um to really elevate the products that we're the most proud of, um, in terms of their heritage, their legacy. Um, it's from a branding point of view, it was really important to me that, that the beers we call icons are that in the market, with their heritage, with their awards that they've won. Um they're very stylized beers as well. We just wanted to really um, make it very clear that all the other things that we do at the moment uh, have different kind of purposes and momentum. And we just didn't want to cloud the airspace around, around the icons that have been and always will be. So it gives them actually a little bit of, a bit of clear air, I guess, by, by keeping it a little bit separate. Also, because it's a, you know we're calling it a sub range the idea is for it always to be reasonably flexible things will be able to go into that range come out of that range we can be a more um, agile business in that sense in that space um, whereas changes to changes to the icons would be major considerations like huge considerations we've got not only the beer and how recognisable they are, um, but the artwork, uh, the fact that they're produced still in bottles as well as in cans. We've got commitments other than uh, just what's inside the packaging that we need to consider. Um, and we wanted to give ourselves a bit of more freedom to be, to be a little bit more playful. Um, but if we're gonna do that, the icons become protected. So it's not so much moving moving the icons out of it, it's making sure that we weren't interrupting their space.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I really like that you've mentioned the artwork uh, and obviously there's been a huge, a real link between uh, Mona and Moobrew visually as well as commercially. How do you balance that relationship as you grow and, you know, maintain Moo Brewers, an independent brand, but also like utilize and, and celebrate those links with Mona. Therein lies
2: the great question, doesn't it? It's it's really no, it's really interesting. It's an interesting one, and it's one that um, is at the forefront of our minds all of the time. Um, that it's a fine balance our business has always needed to walk. We're really we're really proud of the fact that we're 17 years old and in the craft beer landscape. That's significant. To just be here after 17 years. And we have a following and, um, you know, and, and a proud legacy of, of Dave's and OJ's before Dave that we, we're really, um, we're really proud of making sure that we're keeping that momentum rolling, um, and being recognised in the industry standalone for who and what we do is very important to us. However, uh, there's now a lot of breweries there's a lot of beer in the market and it would be remiss of us not to make use of what is I think the most interesting origin story for any brewery in Australia. You know, a billionaire goes travelling, sees a bottle, decides he wants to patent it, brings it home, has to fill it and that's how a brewery is born. (laughs) Um, it's, It's unique and we would be crazy if we didn't use it as one of our unique selling points, not to mention the little museum that came after us, I might add. We were here first. Oh, yeah, everyone, make note. Uh, just make note, we were here first. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Mona is synonymous with things that are interesting and ever-changing and it's important for us and our connection to that space that, that we stay true to that, those ethos as well.
0: Definitely. And I think we've, we've obviously talked about that, that visual link. Um, how do you keep that with the sub range? Because as you mentioned, you know, uh, it, it, we're sort of aiming for a bit of a wider audience with the um, Brew by moo brew. Do you think that the link with Mona is something that those kind of customers would be interested in, or it, does it not really matter to them? It's a bit more general.
2: I think from, um, from a visual point of view, again, with the, with the intent to make it more familiar to a commercial drinker, that was the reason we decided to go with a very pared back, minimalist, uh, look in this range. Um, having said that, this range has given us the perfect, the perfect beers for, uh, musical festivals to be at sort of large scale events which speak to our brand story, like, like music events, um, it gives us, a cost of goods are lower, it gives us more, more scope for sponsorship and partnership in the things that we're really passionate about supporting, which are ultimately linked to our heritage with Mona. So music, art, um, Tasmanian events, this brand gives us so much more scope to play in that space. So whilst the artwork isn't on the can in this particular instance, our brand strategy and this product opens doors in those spaces for us in a different way.
0: Interesting. Okay. And we've touched on the icons range as well. Um, Jack, how's that going? How Are you still enjoying brewing them? Do they resonate with consumers still? Does that go up and down?
1: I mean, I think anyone would be lying to if they said they different core range icon range beers or skews don't go up and down depending on what the market wants to drink i think one of um our biggest challenges as a production team is always improving uh icon range beers to get them to where we want to be it's no point just sitting on your hands and thinking that you're making the best beer in the world because everyone's making great beer across the country at the moment and it's always getting better and better and quality is just going up so um that's one thing we've been working really hard on we've made a bunch of changes and worked really hard on a few of the beers in the last few years uh, from a quality perspective uh, and I think uh, that really reflects how they've been drinking uh, in in trade in general uh, and then that, that also reflects on who's buying them and what what pubs want to buy them and how well they get poured through taps and whatnot. So it's sort of um, something that we're definitely really big on uh, and obviously we're lucky that a bunch of our um, peers of beers that Mubra has been brewing from day dot Um, so obviously things change and um, they get little tweaks along the way but we've got a pretty good foundation to to work off on that side of things
0: in terms of tweaks then what kind of thing is it ingredients wise is it technique wise
1: yeah I mean mean, it can be everything from raw materials through to um, just general brewing science Uh, depends on what you want to do and what the result is you want to get out of it so um, there's so many different moving parts on a brew day or in fermentation um, schedules uh, that, yeah, that you can change a lot of things to make small differences uh, and often small changes can have huge impacts. So uh, it depends on sort of what you're after and, and what you're doing and we've sort of sat down. COVID definitely forced our hand a little bit to, to make some changes on that side of things. Um, in, incoming goods were a bit harder to get hold of, things are getting more expensive. Uh, and then we we're also really driven to improve our shelf life and quality of beer because things were sitting around a bit longer and all those sort of things. So beer, always we always think our beers taste amazing because we drink them the day they come off the line. But then you travel to Victoria or New South Wales and you drink your beer that's six, seven, eight months old, and it's a totally different experience. So we've been working really hard on quality improvements, uh, and then obviously that with that comes some recipe tweaks and um, general changes. Yeah,
0: but nothing fundamentally huge that requires an announcement
1: not from a changing perspective and when do you announce it well i mean uh, oh you don't if the beer is constantly getting better and it's still the same beer i don't think there's any reason to tell everyone you're changing it um if they're happy buying it and they're getting a great drinking experience out of a product that they know and love then i don't think you need to keep telling them you're changing the the issue comes when you change things so much they're not the same beer Uh, and you know that then you sort of got to look at look at what you want to do and why you're doing it and the, yeah. the reasons for that but we're definitely not in the process of doing that at the moment
0: yeah because just because we've uh, written recently about recipe changes and obviously there have been some standout um mess ups uh with that in uh the past sort of 10 20 years vb i'm looking at you um but that's not really something that um happens that often i don't think and i think there is always a little bit of that tweaking and that quality control going on in the background that you just it's not necessary to sort of communicate that with the market if you're happy and as you say if it tastes the same and it's the same experience then you know why Why do we need to um but it is an interesting point for brewers because as we develop as an industry these beers that we have in our core ranges they might have to change because of availability of ingredients because of uh, consumer tastes and things like that. So it's always, I guess, important to, to keep that in mind, how you communicate that and, and at what point you do. Um, but yeah, just just an interesting one from me there. Um, but you've also been doing a fair few limiteds, I believe, Jack, talk me through. Have you got any standout ones that,
1: um, I know we talked
0: uh, briefly before about the head?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, the limited release program's been going for a couple of years now and it gives us an opportunity to play in a different space again outside of the Icon range and now the brew range. Um, it's definitely a more creative space. There's smaller batch runs, um, obviously limited in uh, volume. So that gives us a bit more um, capacity to do some different stuff. We're obviously not the coolest and weirdest kids on the block as far as the craft brewing scene goes, but uh, we've definitely got some passionate brewers in the brewery and people, we all enjoy drinking different beers uh, and it gives us an opportunity to brew some beers that you know we don't brew and, five days a week um, every day of the year. So that's been a really uh, interesting project for us from a brewery perspective and a staff enjoyment perspective. We, along with that, we, like you mentioned, the Hef, we've, we've sort of been releasing some of our other beers that have sat in that Icon range and don't sit there anymore as sort of seasonal releases. So um, they come in under the limited or the seasonal banner. Um, so we're obviously, uh, Stout is one that comes out as a seasonal. We brought the Hef back. The Beljo, which is a Belgian pale ale, came back uh, for a little cameo. So it's really nice to be able to um, bring some of those beers that people know and love from the Moo brand back, uh, do them in a bit of a smaller smaller batch run and um, get them out and about with the Moo Boo brand on them again. So it's always good fun. I think from a um, favourite beer perspective, I, I, I don't think I've got one particular beer that I think is better than the other. They're all different. They're always a little bit um creative and quirky so it's not like we're just smashing out hazy after hazy and I'm, I can say oh this one was better that one because A, B, C and D I think um, we're trying really hard to keep some diverse beer styles in there and sort of keep it interesting but without going too far on the quirky end of the spectrum a lot of our drinkers still appreciate the sort of consistency and quality uh, that we want to replicate also in the limited range as well so we sort of got to keep that in mind as well.
0: And I think it's really interesting from the perspective of a production brewery doing limited releases, because you don't have necessarily have that one venue where you can test them out or you can um, get feedback from customers necessarily. How does that work for you guys as a production brewery? Uh, obviously, you'll have the Mona venues, so you can test them out there.
1: Well, yeah, look, the stakes are pretty high for any it's terrifying large, isn't, larger is brewery the when, you, when you start throwing <laughs> thousands and thousands of dollars of fruit in the mix or... Um, you know, they're big tanks of beer. You can't afford to to get them wrong. Um, they need to be good from the get go. So that is challenging. We don't have a small brewery uh, facility where we can run those sort of pilot size brews through. Um, Lauren, or, or do that's on
0: the shopping list,
1: or do testing. I did. I built mm-hmm. a little hundred liter system, which is essentially just a glorified homebrew system. So we can play around with flavor uh, flavor differences and colors and all the things that you want to. Make sure you get right when you run it through the big system, but um yeah it's stressful it's probably brewing different stuff is really enjoy enjoying enjoyable because it's creative and you're thinking outside the box and doing something you don't normally do but the risk of it not being good is also really high and that's you know it, it happens and you can't be perfect all the time and we always really strive to get it right but um you learn a lot of things along the way and i think that's one of the most enjoyable things is you know, you might not make it 100% how you want it every time, but you learn something for next time. And that's part of the enjoyment from my perspective from, from brewing.
0: And I think that's so important as well, because, you know, for a brewer, I imagine brewing the same thing for a number of years, kind of over and over again, could get a little bit monotonous. So it's always nice to mix it up a little bit and, and do something that might be a bit technically challenging, might be a bit um, outside the box uh, in terms of, consumer tastes but you know it's worth doing uh for that creativity for that um consumer interest because there will be a section of the market that's really interested in trying all of these because i know you have a beer club is that right is that still ongoing what's happening with that no
2: it was launched that was something that we launched during covid and they were like 100 can releases um mm-hmm. oh yeah just for local sort of delivery um but our limited release schedule that we've we sort of grabbed, as soon as Jack and I took over the reins and, and turned it into something a little bit bigger, really was born from, the we called it the Lon- Lonely Beers Club. Um, mm-hmm. And it was definitely born from that because what was really evident was while those guys were punching out these limited releases and the locals were going nuts for them, like nuts for Moorbury being a little bit more imaginative, a little bit bit more creative, Um and it was really where it was born from. Something we, we hope to build that kind of maybe subs- subscription kind of loyalty to limited releases in the you know, in the coming years. Um, amidst all the other projects, Claire. I've got a list as <laughs> list as long as I um right up there.
0: <laughs> got to keep yourself busy though, don't you, Lauren? Maybe
2: twice over. <laughs> well well, yeah. Um well but you I mean you touched on it too. That we we are a production facility, um, without that sort of advantage of having um, consumers right there to test products on, Um, and that's definitely on our radar as well. We're very lucky to have Mona um, as a great you know great sort of showcase of our products, Um, but we're yet to to really establish um, a moobrew customer facing experience, and we would love to see that happen um,
1: you Mm -hmm. know in
2: the near future away. Gauge director, yeah. consumer. Do you think that's important? Uh, I do. I, I think it's really important. Um, I think it's important for a lot of reasons. Um, I think obviously, in the in the boring Lawrence side of things, retail revenue um, versus wholesale revenue is significantly different. Um, and I know. I don't think there'd be many breweries around that would survive without retail revenue. Like we've, we've built to a volume that's allowed us to. Um, be just wholesale production, um, but, you know, we talk about that beautiful kind of purple patch, you know, sort of, I don't know, 800,000 to a million litres is kind of what you need to be able to punch out comfortably to to have a sustainable kind of wholesale-only business platform and that's not um, attainable for everybody. So, yes, retail revenue is really important, but more so than that, um, and it's a bit like the limiteds, the limiteds are fun from a brewing point of view. Really important to the business from a retention point of view. Like God knows employee retention is going to be a focus for everybody, I think, um, post-COVID, um, the great resignation and people deciding they're a bit antsy and they've been through it and they want to change and they want to move. Employee retention has got to be a real focus. So the limiteds give us... A little bit of a, I think they're really important for that too, to keep brewers interested and challenged and engaged. Mm -hmm. The other thing we notice because we don't have that face to face contact is that when we do have the occasion, you know, if we do get to pour beers at a festival or we do get to even to go to a, a trade show, what a joy it is to see the brewers stand behind a counter, put a beer direct into someone's hand and get the feedback from a customer that we just don't get. Um, it's it's. Um, I sound like a nerd, but it's a really joyful experience to watch them because they do. They they feed off it. We all do because we get so stuck in our processes and our day to day and what has become you know a volume business. That um, I think there's a lot of joy that he had to see that reaction to the product that you put all that hard work into firsthand, mm-hmm. rather than you know third party reviews.
0: Yeah. Definitely. And it's really interesting about you, that you mentioned that it would be nice to potentially in future have that customer facing uh, aspect of Moot Brew. Because uh, I hear a lot from brewers nowadays that, you know, the brew pub model is the way forward. Uh, everybody's going for the brew pub, like maybe the suburban one, rather than production first, which it seemed to be maybe at the, definitely at the start of Moo Brew and a lot of others, for example, I spoke to uh, the guys from Kaiju the other week, obviously they started out production. Do you think it's even possible to start as a production brewery In if, if I decided this year that I wanted to start a production brewery? Is that even possible in today's market?
2: Uh, if you came to me as a friend, Clarence, this is what I'm gonna do, I would say, <laughs> uh, mate, you're crazy. Um,
0: don't do it
2: but it is possible I do I believe it's possible yes I do um, with the right amount of investment with the right amount of passionate people prepared to um, to do the hard yards to, to wait a, a bit of time to see the return on investment that comes from starting a business that way um, yeah there's certainly models in which it's possible but there's a difference between possible and really bloody hard um mm-hmm. And I think it's really bloody hard and if I was going to start something from scratch myself the, there has to be a retail model element to it straight up straight out the gate. Yep. But I guess in some ways our, our sub brand is, is almost you know I suppose a lot of people see the brew pub model as their, their bill paying element like the brew pub grants them that kind of uh, economic freedom to do what they want to do from a production facility um, standing, I guess, the same ethos. The first step towards that, I guess, is the brew by my brew range for us gives us that volume boost and that um retail turnover to allow us to expand into different spaces. So, we, we're we doing similar things, we're just maybe doing it in reverse to the new guys on the block.
0: <laughs> That's exactly it. And I've spoken to like numerous um smaller brew pubs that are launching, have just launched in the past year or so. Um, and a lot of them say, you know, as you've just said, Lauren, the, the margins, the retail margins are what you want. That's what you want in a tap room. You need that kind of money to keep going, especially in this kind of environment now. And that actually selling to bottle shops is purely a brand awareness thing. They, you don't make any money off that, not a substantial amount anyway. Um, so it's really interesting that, yeah, Moobrew's done it the opposite way and done it so well or may potentially do it the opposite way um so yeah that's really cool and i think it's uh worked out really well it's a really strong base to grow from at the very least
2: i hope so we've, we've also got the advantage once we do get there of already having a fair amount of brand awareness um so we're we're lucky once once we once we do go that in, in that route we don't need to um but it'd be it'd be lovely i think at some stage too fantastic
0: what have you both seen uh, in the industry grow while you've been in it? Um, what are the biggest changes that you guys have noticed while you've been involved? I'd be really naive to
2: answer this to uh, any great sort of length, only having been in it a couple of years. But I, I would say that um, the buy local mentality has certainly grown. I think that's wonderful. Um I don't know if it's a change, but I definitely feel the closeness of the community here in Hobart. I think that's a wonderful thing. I can't really speak to how that's changed um, in the last two years specifically, but um, coming from other industries, I came from wine, but p- before that I was in finance and, you know, it would be very easy for us to fall into a really competitive space. Um, and I think the fact that our our local industry in tassie and i think nationally too i think that the industry is really supportive of one another but um but it's interesting to me in a competitive space really that that you don't feel that competitive nature in the background what about you jack can you speak to it much with much more authority than i can
1: yeah i don't know i think the <clears throat> from a beer perspective the industry's changed the whole ton in the last five plus years i think there's you know specifically with trends and the way people are buying beer now and drinking beer it's it's not your carton purchases or your six packs that's going into a bottle shop and having a huge selection of individual cans in front of you uh which is something that you know along not that long ago what there might have been two or three different beers and then you're looking to buy. A, a safe six pack so I think general drinking styles has changed a lot I think the other thing that's been really great to see over the years is just the quality of beer that everyone's punching out like there's some amazing beer coming out of Australia now and everything from tiny little guys through to really big production breweries that are making great beer uh, so I think the consumer in general is just spoilt for choice uh, and that's definitely something we've seen in Tassie as you mentioned before there's a heap of breweries Uh, in Tassie per capita and a lot of them are now making really good beer and that's epic to see that transition to to really be able to fly the Tassie flag of quality that's now coming off the island.
2: What's next for Moobrew then? We want to really like really solidify this um, sub-brand it's doing really well for us Um, but in the next 12 months what I'd really like to see is I guess the fruits of that labour, the things that we hoped it would get for us, which is some of the economies of scale that we were looking for. Uh, We are really just focused on making sure that, um, you know, we've been here 17 years, that we're not lost in the noise. Um, So making sure that our brand story is really strong, the way we tell that story, how we connect to direct to consumers, I guess, is going to be our real focus in the next few years. You know, whether that's website, whether that's our limited release subscription program, whether it's, um, you know, whether it's a, a brew pub. If it's a brew pub, how do we make a brew pub that screams Mona and Moo Brew um, and breaks through the noise? I, I think the challenges that face Moo Brew are the, probably the same things most breweries are thinking about, how to how to kind of stick your hand up in the in the waves of, of bodies and make sure people continue to see you. Um, that, that's really our focus.
0: What about you, Jack?
1: Well, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, it's probably a little easier. It's just making sure good quality beer keeps going out the door. So we've definitely got our (laughs) hands full. We've got a pretty small production team as far as brewers and packaging and warehousing go. So making sure we keep everyone healthy and happy and uh, enjoying doing what they're doing to make sure we can supply the demand that's growing quite rapidly at the moment for us, particularly with these new sub-brands on board. So we're definitely juggling a few things at once, but um, so far so good. And hopefully... Uh, I mean, obviously, our hope and what looks like it's going to happen is that the industry does sort of get back to some semi COVID normal and pubs can keep open, stay open and everyone keeps having a good time and we can keep making beer and getting fresh beer to everyone.
0: Fantastic. Oh, well, that sounds wonderful. Well, thank you very much, Lauren Shepherd and Jack Viney uh, from MooBrew, for um, popping in for the Bearers of Conversation podcast. Really appreciate you guys coming on uh, and having a chat today.
1: No worries. Thanks, Thanks for having us. It was it. great.
2: because beer
1: is a conversation.